This is a subject that is sure to make me and any other person that talks about it in the light that we're going to talk about it, a very popular person. I'm going to be everybody's favorite pastor today, okay? Because we are talking about sexuality. Somebody say sexuality. See, okay, I was like, a few people will say it, but I was guessing there'd be the lack of the usual gusto there, and that's okay, that's okay. Um, we're going to be talking about that today, and we're going to also be branching out into the realm of homosexuality as well. Uh, again, I'll be everybody's favorite person by the end of the day. But God has a word for us in this, and there's things that we need to know, and, and, and there's a heart that God wants us to have on this. And we're having this conversation because it's part of our Tough Stuff series. Okay, I'll, let me try it again. Somebody say Tough Stuff. That's more like it. That's a little better. I don't think I'll bug you too much today, don't worry. Anyway, this Tough Stuff series, we're looking at a whole bunch of practices and opinions and beliefs and values that are really held onto tightly by the culture, and we're seeing how that stacks up against who is God, what does God say, where does it fall in relation to the life that God has for us? How many of you know that God has a life for you today? Excellent. Now, there are few areas where this gap between God and the culture are as prevalent as they are in the realm of sexuality. Um, this is a large, charged, massive thing in our culture. The culture has its strongly held opinions and beliefs and practices regarding sexuality, and they don't really like to be told any different. This is what I think, this is what I should do, this is what we should all vouch for because it's all really good. What we forget or don't like to regard though is that God also has something to say about our sexuality. And again, it's good. God's word over us, God's ethic for us sexually is a good thing for us and it's part of the life that he has for us. And what I wanna say before we get into the meat of this, I was really nailed this week by once again, just this concept of truth and grace. Like we've talked about that in the previous couple of weeks. Like we need to be a people of the truth, but we can't afford at all to jettison the grace either. And I was just nailed this week. Even God, God laid it on me. He said, Braden, you remember John 3.16? I said, yeah, I remember John 3.16. He said, what does John 3.16 say? I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So God loves, God loves us. You need to hear before we talk about anything we're gonna talk about today, God loves you. Repeat that, God loves you. And then even John three seventeen, it goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So when we talk about sexuality, homosexuality, things like this, this is not ultimately a message of condemnation. God has grace for us and love for us and a life for us, but he also has truth for us to hear. So we're gonna get into all of that now. So the first thing we gotta do, we gotta take a zoomed out 37,000 foot look at what is sexuality. It's always been a part of our existence and our experience as humans. It's not like we discovered it part way along the way. Like it's always been here, but sometimes it's a very confusing part of our human experience. So we gotta just really simplify this and get back to the heart of what sexuality is and what it's for. The reality is it's not all about the act and the activity of sexual intercourse. It's way more than that. See, I told you it was gonna be heavy today. You're welcome, I'm telling you. It's all right, it's good. Um, sexuality is way bigger than that though. It's a broad sweeping part of who we are that involves things like attraction and intimacy and romance and desires and passion and pleasure and connection. It's a big thing. It's not just about something that you do. It's something that you feel and you desire and you think and you experience it as well. And sexuality is a very powerful force in our lives. And that in and itself isn't a problem. The problem is, since it's so powerful, we often wield it the wrong way. That's happened all through the generations. That happens in our generations. People wield sexuality the wrong way. And again, it's not a new thing, but in our culture, in our day, it's especially prevalent. Like we found new ways of, of wielding this and wielding it wrongly. Our culture, this will not be a shock to you, our culture is completely sex-obsessed. 
completely. It's bombarded at us from every possible angle. When you turn your TV on, boom, there it is. When you scroll through social media, boom, there it is. When you listen to the radio, boom, there it is. To the degree that, I'll give you an example, the song of the year, it was voted song of the year, the best song of the year 2020, last year, was a song called WAP. And if you've heard of it, I'm sorry for you. And if you haven't heard of it, here's my, here's my pastoral advice. Don't go look it up. Don't go listen to it, okay? You're welcome for that. I'll just spare you that. But that song is like supercharged sexuality. That's like the whole thing. And that's what we held up as. This is the best song that we could find out of any song in 2020. Because that's where our culture is on that. We have things in our culture called the sex positive movement, for instance. I'll read you a little bit about that. The sex positive movement, this will sound familiar to you. It's an attitude toward human sexuality that regards consensual sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable. The movement generally makes no moral distinctions among types of sexual activities regarding these choices as matters of personal preference. That is where our culture is on that. I'm going to do what I want to do and you do what you want to do and don't you dare tell me not to do what I want to do because it's all good. So it's this powerful force that we kind of wield the wrong way. We don't seek the Lord in it. So what we need to do is get some clarity on it, on sexuality. So I'm going to blast through five statements about sexuality this morning. Just general sexuality, five things. Number one is this. Sexuality is from God. It is from God. It was his idea. It originates. It's not that we, you know, evolved over hundreds of generations and got smarter and you know then discovered it along the way no it was from God from the beginning he came up with it it's his idea in Genesis chapter 1 the first chapter in the whole Bible when it talks about God creating things the first commandment that he gives to people the very first is be fruitful and multiply okay so it's just there it was there all along right from the beginning and therefore that's important for us because that tells us the way that we properly understand sexuality is to go right to the source of it and that is God he came up with it the best way that we can understand it is to understand it based on what God says about it and what his heart about it is and you need to understand this life, like we keep talking about how God has a life for you, this life that God has for you has direct implications for your sexuality. It's not as though they exist in separate silos. You got your Jesus life over here and your sexuality over here. No, they are, they're not separate like that. The reality is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Lord over all areas of life, including our sexuality. And we do well, we start to flourish when we acknowledge his authority, when we acknowledge his lordship, and we humble ourselves, and we align ourselves with him in his heart and his character and what he says. So sexuality is from God. Number two, going along with that, sexuality has purpose. It's for a reason. It's actually two reasons for sexuality. One of them is God's glory. One of them is our good. And that's generally on a sidebar how God works. When God tells us to do something or think a certain way or be something, generally speaking, it turns out to be honoring to him and good for us. God doesn't tell us to do things that are good for him but bad for us. That's part of his love and his grace and his heart for us. If it's honoring to him, it's something that'll be ultimately good for us. But anyway, God's glory is one of the purposes of sexuality. When we exercise and operate rightly in the realm of our sexuality, it can be an act of worship to God. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that we can honor God with our bodies. The way that you use and operate your body can be honoring, worshipful to the Lord. It's also for our good, as I said. When we operate correctly, rightly, in God's way, in God's will, in our sexuality, it can bring about things like pleasure and greater intimacy in a marriage and greater connection and health benefits. It can reduce stress. It can foster unity in a marriage. There's all kinds more benefits than that even, but it's for our good. Somebody in their mind is like, He's right, but I don't want to speak up and say amen. That's okay. A silent amen will do today. That's all right. Anyway, number three, sexuality has boundaries. And this is where 
someone really would agree with the last part. This is where some people might get off and start disagreeing. But sexuality has boundaries. It's a good thing that's given to us, again, for God's glory, our good. But when we use it wrongly, when we use it outside the parameters of how God intended it, you might have heard the expression before, a good thing used the wrong way, it's no longer a good thing even if it originally was supposed to be. And God says here, sexuality, this, this nature of sexuality, I'm giving it to you as a gift, here you go. And what we oftentimes say is, thank you, Lord, but actually I'm gonna use it this way. I think I know better, I know best, so thanks anyway, but I'm gonna take this and run with it. Our culture, the message that our culture speaks is that there are countless different sexual expressions and preferences and every single one of them is equally valid. You just do you, you live your truth, you go with it. That is the message, that is the heart of the culture. God, however, says there are actually only two valid expressions of sexuality in my sight. And I'll explain what those are. Again, the culture would strongly disagree with that. But that is what God says. Number one, in God's eyes, valid expression of our sexuality is in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. Again, not super popular in the world, but that is what God says. One man, one woman in marriage for life. You say, well, why is that, Braden? Why is that? Well, if you look in the early parts of Scripture, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, for instance, that is the model that you see laid out. Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, marriage for life. There's such a thing as covenant in marriage. Somebody say covenant. Covenant is a thing that God has ordained and instituted. It's more than just a, yeah, I promise, but I got my fingers behind my back. Covenant is like a deep commitment, a strong bond, a strong promise. And that is ultimately what the institute of marriage is. That's how God has set it up. God also talks about how the institute of marriage is a mystery, he calls it. Those of you who are married, you'll agree with that. Marriage is a mystery sometimes. But he said it corresponds to the nature of God and his church, right? We read that, that we, the church, are the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom and one day we will be united or reunited and we'll be together forever. So that is the pattern and the precedent laid out. And it's between, again, one man and one woman, that is what God says. Now, the other valid sexual expression that God uh, makes allowance for is celibacy or singleness. And you say, well, that seems like not really an expression. Oh, but it is. That is where you're choosing to remain single. You're choosing to not pursue sexuality in a certain way. And I wanna just, I wanna stay on that for one second. Sometimes in our culture, not like, predominantly, prevalently, exclusively, but sometimes I think people have in their minds singleness is like a curse. It's not good. Oh, it's, there must be something wrong with me or whatever. I wanna, I wanna just remind you, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter seven, for instance, all through there, there is countless validation of, no, being single can be a blessing. It can be really good. The reality is God has for some to get married and he has for some not to get married. And both are good. And I'm not saying this, I understand, like, I'm not trying to sound patronizing to those of you who are single. Oh, it's okay. God says it's good. Just deal with it. No, but my prayer for you is that you, if you're single, you would start to or continue to know God's heart for you in that. If that's his will for you to be single, he has a plan and a purpose and a plan to give you a hope and a future to prosper you and not to harm you. And again, you read 1 Corinthians 7 and it shows how singleness is a blessing. It's a good thing. It's an honored position. So matter of fact, I wanna just pause and pray on that, Lord, for the singles in our church, for the singles who are hearing this message that we're not taking a deep dive into this this morning, God. I'm praying that you would remind all of the single folks, God, not only are they loved by you, but they're also not in any shape less than you know a second class kind of person. God, they are honored, valued, necessary, vital parts of the kingdom. And God, I'm thankful that you have ordained that singleness is a, a wonderful and a good option. And I'm praying, God, for peace. I'm praying for uh, a heart of people seeking you in that, Lord. Uh, let your will just be done in each of our lives, God. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Now, 
Outside of those two expressions though, marriage between one man and a woman for life or singleness, God ordained singleness, everything outside of that according to God is not part of his plan for our sexuality. Whether it's, for instance, homosexual activity or bisexuality or pansexuality or, or fornication or masturbation or pornography use or the list goes on and on and on, those things are not part of God's heart and God's plan for our sexuality. And ultimately, what it really comes down to, just boil it really down and make it really simple, it comes down in many ways to God's authority over my life. I might have my own opinions on how I can express my sexuality and no one's gonna tell me what to do or I can humble myself and say, okay, Lord, I might not understand everything about why, you know, if, if I wanted to move in with my girlfriend and we're not married, like, why can't I do that? Like, it's kind of like marriage or, or someone might say, well, God, look, I don't understand, you know, isn't a homosexual relationship sort of the same as a heterosexual one? Love is love. You hear that in the culture? You might say, well, I, God, I, I don't really think that a little pornography use is hurting me or anybody else. The issue is God's authority. He has spoken. He has uttered. He has written. He has let us know his will. And the question is, will we trust him in that or not? I'll be very honest with you just to make sure you guys know I'm not up here on a high horse. There are things that I've done in my life pertaining to my sexuality where I was out of line with God's authority. And I've had to come to a place in my life where I say, look, my flesh may desire what it desires, but God, I want you more. I want your path more. So each of us needs to come to that place of humility and submission if we're gonna get onto God's heart and God's pro program in this area. Now that's number three, sexuality has boundaries. The fourth thing, kind of just alluded to this, we are sexually broken. The ground is pretty level on this one. We have all done things. I would hazard strongly a guess that we have all done things that are out of line with God's heart for our sexuality. Like I'll be the first to say, I certainly have. Regrettably, sometimes things are done to us that are outside of God's realm for sexuality. And since sexuality is such a powerful force, it's such a powerful thing in our lives, when things go outside of God's will, they can leave scars and deep scars in us. It's not just like a surface level scratch. Our sexual brokenness can run super, super, super deep and cause really deep scarring in us. The reality is we all need some kind to some degree of a redemptive work from the Lord with regard to our sexuality. Again, you guys know your lives. You guys know where you've been at. The ground is pretty well level here. Here's what I just wanna quickly encourage you on. Though we're all broken sexually, God can fix us. And the verse that I stumbled across this week is from Psalm 23. You guys all know Psalm 23, famous psalm, great psalm. One of the verses in that says that he restores my soul. God is the restorer of souls, a fixer of souls. And the wounds that we have received or dealt to ourselves with regard to our sexuality, they sometimes are a soul level thing. They're super deep. Well, God can restore that. That is God's heart for you. If you are broken sexually, God wants to restore to a redemptive work in your life. And that's good news today. And we know that when we walk with God, when we get close to God, I read Psalm 34 yesterday. It said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds Again, I don't know where you're at on this today, but if you have a wound, God wants to walk with you and meet with you in that. I know it's heavy, but there's grace and there's good in that for us. Fifth statement about sexuality. This kind of goes back to what we talked about last week, but I want to remind you again, your identity is primarily spiritual, not sexual. And that's really good news for those of us who have messed up in this department. Life is ultimately about more than our sexuality. Again, sometimes it doesn't seem that way in our culture. It's so loudly proclaimed. It's so prevalently spoken of. You might think, well, I don't know, this must be like the most important thing about me, about my life, my sexuality. That is not so. Jesus said in John 17, 3, verse we come back to a lot. He says, this is eternal life. This is true, the true essence of living 
that they know God. Jesus says the true essence of life is that you are close to God and have a relationship with God. That is what your life is all about. And that is where your identity ultimately comes from. If you're a believer in Jesus, we talked about that last week. You are, as I said, you are partly a sexual being. That's a part of who you are. But that does not fully sum up who you are. Again, some people think the most prominent thing about me is, for instance, my sexual orientation. It is not. You were not created just for sex or sexuality. You were created to worship God. You were created for the glory of God. You were created to be in a relationship with the God who made you. And you were created to understand your life and yourself and your identity based on who he is and what he says about you. Again, I call us back to last week talking about identity. It comes from Jesus Christ. Don't look for your identity in something else, in someone else, in an area like sexuality. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's a good life. That is the place to be. Life is ultimately about him. Jesus is the goal and the prize and the point of it all. And again, I will say, if we would humble ourselves in the realm of sexuality, if we would submit ourselves unto his rule and unto his authority, what we would find is that there is a joy there and a peace there. There is contentment and fulfillment and a life there. Because my prayer, my heart for you, the reason we're even talking about all this in the first place, I want you to walk with Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you, if you're not already, to be saved by Jesus because he has a life and a good life for you. Okay? I know it's heavy so far. Everybody do me a favor. Take a deep breath now. Deep breath in and let her go. Do one more. I need a drink now. Go ahead. We're going to uh, shift gears now. That's just a, a broad flyover on sexuality. We're going to shift gears and talk specifically about homosexuality. Um, this is one of the most supercharged topics in our culture to talk about. And I can tell, I can even sense like the heaviness in the room. I get it. It's large. But God has a good word for us in this. And I appreciate your guys' grace in this for sure. Now, with regard to homosexuality, we've seen over the years sort of a cultural shift toward it. Homosexuality is something that's actually been around for a long, long, long time. It's not a new thing. Um, if you read in the book of Genesis, for instance, chapter 19, Genesis written thousands of years ago. And in Genesis 19, there's clear evidence of homosexual activity and desire happening then. And it's happened all throughout history, all along the course of time until now. What we've seen, though, in our Western, in our Canadian maritime culture is a shift with regard to the acceptance of homosexuality. It's always been here. It just was a little bit taboo for a lot of years. But over time, the culture started to change. You uh, had things like the sexual revolutions of the 1960s. They came along and changed a lot. You saw things like homosexuality being decriminalized in Canada. It was 1969. Culture continues to change and, and morph and move along. Uh, eventually, gay marriage was legalized. That was in my lifetime. And even in the last 10 years or so, you've probably noticed just a, a radical acceleration in the widespread mainstream acceptance of homosexuality. I know you felt the weight of that. I know you felt the, the pull in that direction. And the result of the cultural shift is that there has been a church shift in some ways whether it's pressure being put on the church from the outside, from the culture, or people in the church trying to be relevant, whatever the reason is, there are Christians and there are churches who have sort of abandoned the traditional gospel message and the biblical ethic on homosexuality, and they've said, well, actually, uh, times have changed. Uh, God didn't mean what he said. God actually meant something else, or, or we're just not going to focus on those scriptures. We're going to kind of do this. And that's a problem. That's a problem because, for a few reasons, but predominantly, the church is not supposed to take its cues from the culture. It's not where we look to make our decisions. And the unpopular truth, again, that, that we'll state here, is that God 
states in his word that the practice of homosexuality is sinful. He does. It's not part of his heart. It's not part of his plan. It's not part of his desire for us. It's not part of the life that he has for us. Again, the culture loudly disagrees. We'll probably get some comments on Facebook on this later, just saying. Um, Some Christians disagree. But that is what the Lord says in his word. And you say, well, why does God say that? Why is the practice of homosexuality sinful? I would point you back again to what we already talked about. In the early stages of scripture, God lays out his design. Genesis 1 and 2, it's man and woman together, context of marriage. It goes right back to that. Or the singleness like we talked about. Those are the arenas for sexual expression. And there's a a really important verse. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And it says this. This kind of lays out the trajectory that God has in mind. It says that a man will leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is, the, that is the pattern and the precedent laid out by God. This is, by the way, before the fall of the world into sin. This is God's ideal. This is the way God has set it up. And some Christians will try to argue, people in general, but some Christians will try to argue, well, no, 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 no. The verses on homosexuality don't say whatever. They're, they're misinterpreted. We need to look at them through a different lens, a 21st century lens. We've learned more. Our scholarship is better now, whatever, whatever. Here's what I would submit to you. Even if, and we're going to look at some of these scriptures in a second, even if you could convincingly argue to me against all of the verses that speak about the practice of homosexuality, do you know what you're not going to see anywhere in the scriptures? You're not going to see any mention, any evidence anywhere of God saying that it's okay. And I think that says something, not just with regard to this topic, but with anything. If we're arguing against something, it's also helpful to see if God is for that, and he is not anywhere in the scriptures. But what I want to do, I want to look at a few of them. Something interesting, by the way, about the Bible and the practice of homosexuality, for as big a topic as this is, you might think There must be like dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of verses that talk about it for the amount of like, you know, oomph we put into this. There's actually, you know how many? There's only like five or six verses that actually speak directly in a direct way about the practice of homosexuality. But they speak loudly and we're going to look at a few of them. One of them is from Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. And the specific verse in here, I want, to, I want to direct your attention to the last one at the bottom here, verse 22 of Leviticus 18. God says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Some people will come along and say, ah, but this is Old Testament. This is to the nation of Israel. This was in the law of Moses and we're not under the law. We're under grace. So this doesn't apply. Yeah, I mean, I know he said it right there, but it's different. It doesn't apply to us. I'm going to show you why it does apply to us. If you look at the rest of those verses, the context in which God says, verse 22, look what it says. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. In other words, you don't look at what the culture is doing. Don't let that be a concern of yours. You don't look at the culture that it used to be or the culture that's starting up. That's not where you take your cues from. You will not walk in their statutes. Instead, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Notice that he says two times there, I am the Lord your God. You know what he's doing? He's pointing to his character. God is pointing to his character, which by the way is unchanging. And when God re-emphasizes this, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, what he's saying is seasons and times and cultures will change, but I don't change. My word doesn't change. So he's basing this in a principle of his own character. And if it was something that was wrong back then, it, no lo- it doesn't shift to becoming right today. Another one is from Romans chapter 1, verse 26. It talks about how their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with other men. And it goes on to say that this behavior is error. It's error. It's wrong. 
There's a couple more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says that those that practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, on a fun sidebar, when it says such and such will not inherit the kingdom of God, there's lots of other sexual sins and other sins of different kinds mentioned right in that list. It's not just the one. We'll talk about that later. 1 Timothy 1.10 similarly says, men who practice homosexuality, it says they are lawless and disobedient. By the way, there are a number of other sins listed in that list as well in that verse. We'll talk about that later. And some people will read verses like that and like the ones we've seen and they, they'll say, no, no, no. The original language, the Hebrew or the Greek this was written in, we've reinterpreted it and it actually doesn't say the practice of homosexuality. It's talking about something different like men being effeminate or, or different arguments like that. And I'll spare you the lengthy scholarship this morning of it. I am not some world-renowned scholar, but I have not found any credible evidence, any scholarly credible evidence anywhere that would suggest that the terms that were in the original languages translated to the practice of homosexuality there's no evidence that those are meaning anything different than what we have. This is what the word says. Something that I want to get onto now. So that's, that's some truth. That's some heavy truth. I get it. I want to start kind of looking at the grace in this. The issue, according to the scriptures, if you were paying attention to the ones that we just read, the issue is always the practice of homosexuality. That's very, 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 very hugely important for us to understand. When you look at the scriptures, it does not paint a picture of gay people are in this category unto themselves. They wear this label and this status and just by their very existence and nature, right? They're written off. They're less than. They should be looked down upon. They're unsavable, unusable, unfixable. No, no. That is not the portrait that the Bible paints. It is always exclusively talking about the practice. This is the act where you do something. You engage in some sort of homosexual activity or, or you have some kind of homosexual lust or passion or a homosexual committed relationship or homosexual pornography. By the way, again, a sidebar on that just to make sure none of us are getting too on a high horse. Heterosexual people can sin in a number of those ways too. But again, I will call us back to the fact, like, I don't know if in any place in our hearts, if we start to kind of paint, watch my hands, gay people, like, well, that's their, that's their identity, that's the name badge they wear, that's the most prominent thing, important thing about them, and they're into some other category, like we almost dehumanize them, that is a wrong way to think scripturally. That is not the heart of God scripturally. The reality is, again, I will say, your identity, whoever you are, whatever your life is like, your identity is about more than your sexuality. Ultimately, the biggest question pertaining to our identity, it's not something about our sexuality. The biggest question, the most important question in our lives that needs answering is, do I know Jesus or not? The qualification for getting into heaven is not, were you in the category of a heterosexual person or a homosexual person? No, it's do you know Jesus or not? Have you been saved by Jesus or not? Have you repented from your sins and, and strive to walk with Jesus or not? Again, I will reemphasize, the issue is not just being something. The issue with homosexuality scripturally is doing something, committing something, acting upon it. But even then, people will disagree, and they say, Braden, how could that be true? How could this be wrong? This is who I am. This is the way I was created. Like some people will say, I didn't choose to be gay. That's the way that I am. That's the way that I naturally lean. And when I look at the social science and all the data and all the studies and all the research, I find that there are many countless other people in the world and all around me that feel the same way and are the same way as me. So how could it be wrong? This is the way I am. This is who I am. What I would say to that is that that very well could be true. It probably is true. People that are homosexual, that probably is, like they probably didn't choose it. They probably are that way. Here's the thing though, and we're zooming out from the homosexuality just for a second. 
there's a fundamental flaw in that logic of this is just who I am because guess what? All of us, who we are, is wrong. That's a Judge Judy line, by the way. She says, I know who you are and who you are is wrong. Really ministers to me. Here's what I'm saying in this. Look, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not just talking about homosexuality right here now. All of us. No one is righteous. Not even one. We read Proverbs 3 last week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Your own understanding of yourself is unreliable. Your own understanding of yourself is likely based in error. You're not supposed to just look within yourself for validation and for identity because who you are is wrong, in and of yourself is wrong, unrighteous. It's not solid foundation to build on. It says in verse 6 of Proverbs 3, in all your ways acknowledge him, the Lord, and he will make your paths straight. You know what that means? In and of yourself, your paths are not straight. Your paths are crooked. We cannot rely on our own understanding or the way that we naturally are because who we are is broken. Who we are is sinful. Who we are, we have all sinned and we have made ourselves hostile against God. We have separated ourselves from him by our sin. We have removed ourselves from the realm of the life that God has for us. That is where we all are in and of ourselves. Here's where the good news comes in. God loves you so much that he wants to fix that. Who you are is wrong. Who you are is unrighteous, but God wants to make you righteous and right with him. And he has done so. He has made that possible by means of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are unrighteous, but Jesus, the righteous one, came to us. We are sinners. He was not. We have all separated ourselves from God, and we owe a debt to God for our sin. And Jesus came and died on a cross to pay for our debt, to square up and settle our debt. And that as Jesus died, he took on the whole weight of God's wrath for sin, our sin, whatever the sin is. And he died for it. He paid for it so that you wouldn't have to pay. And here's the super cool thing. Jesus rose from the grave. He's victorious. He's alive. He's ruling and reigning. He's doing great. And he invites every single one of us. Every single one of us now is invited to submit to and surrender to and to look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And like we read last week, when we do that, when we look to Jesus and put our faith and our trust in him and we repent of our sin and when we do a turnaround and say, God, I was living this way, but I want to come to you and live your way. We are saved from our sin. We are saved from that perilous situation we're in. And like we read last week, if anyone is in Christ, he is then a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, you should clap for that. Come on now. Yes, Lord. Yes. And that is where we're at with this. So what I want to do... I'm uh, running a little short on time, but what I want to do is I want to just let you know unmistakably that the message that we're talking about today, we're talking about sexuality, we're talking about homosexuality, we've seen God's truth on the matter. But I want you to know unmistakably that this is a message of invitation. You say, God, what am I supposed to do? Well, guess what? He's inviting you to something. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with your sexuality. Matter of fact, it's bigger than that. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with every part of yourself. Jesus' heart for you is this. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He has rest for you. If you've been out trying to do your own thing, forge your own way, forge your own identity, forge your own life, Jesus has a life for you. And he says, come to me. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. Maybe you're hungering today. Maybe you're longing for something. Maybe there's a hole in your life, in your heart, in your soul that is missing. Jesus says, come to me. I'll fill that for you. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because guess what? He loves you today. 
and he's inviting you. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is calling every single one of us to trust him with everything we got, but more aptly for today, specifically for today, he's inviting us to trust him with our sexuality. I want you to know today that the message of the cross is not, okay, you clean yourself up and then you can come to me, says Jesus. No, the message is not, okay, you get your sexuality in order and then you can come to me. No, Jesus says, come to me just as you are. Just as you are. And guess what? When we do that, when we come to Jesus and give ourselves to him, he comes to us. You draw near to God and he'll draw near to you is what his word says. And he has grace for you and love for you and identity for you and mission for you and purpose for you and hope for you and eternity for you and a life for you. But that invitation, though it's a free invitation, it ultimately will cost us something. Jesus says, if anyone would come to me, he's got to take up his cross and deny himself and come and follow me. So whatever it is in your life that you're chasing after, whatever it is in your life that might be out of sync with the will of God, Jesus is inviting you to come and he's saying, lay that down and trust me and walk with me and follow me. It might cost you something, but you know what? When you come and follow me, says Jesus, you're going to gain everything. You're going to gain it all. That's my heart today. I hope that you know. Like if you're hearing this and, and your sexuality is not in line with what God would desire for you, come, come to him. If you're hearing this and there's a, a tendency toward homosexuality in your life, Jesus says, come to me. The door is wide open. Come to me. God, I just pray that that would land on anyone's heart that needs to hear that, God, anyone that's not walking closely with you, thank you for the invitation, Lord, to come. Thank you for calling us unto yourself, Lord. Yes. Now, what I want to do, this is sort of the bonus addendum to the sermon, okay? The sermon's sort of over, but not over. What I want to do is I want to make carefully sure to speak directly to the church for a minute. Most of us in the room we're followers of Jesus, we're believers in Jesus. We probably knew already what the Bible says about this kind of stuff, but I wanna, I wanna speak and say four things to the church in particular about homosexuality. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Because right now we've gotta go out and we've gotta live in the world, right? We've gotta take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to operate in this realm? The first thing we need to do in this realm, church, is don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. What I mean by that is there are going to be people, and I, I would hazard a guess probably all of us know people who are not believers and who live in certain ways. Maybe they're, maybe they're uh, same-sex attracted, they're whatever, whatever it is. Don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. We're in a post-Christian culture. And that means there's gonna be lots of people doing things that you don't agree with. Well, guess what? If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're told exactly what we need to do. You come face to face into a situation where there's non-Christians doing something wrong, sinful, unchristian. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul says, who am I to judge outsiders? Who am I to judge those outside of the faith? So not those inside the church whom we're supposed to judge. We can take from that that if you come into a situation, you encounter somebody who's not a Christian, not living like a Christian, you don't have to like throw stones at them. Okay, Because in a manner of speaking, we have signed on as Christians to live according to a certain code, right? Jesus calls us to live a certain way, and, and we submit unto that. But someone who's never come to Jesus, they've never agreed to do that. And though they should, and we want them to, why do we expect non-Christians to live like Christians is beyond me. But sometimes we do. We turn up our nose. We say, oh, that's just horrible. That's wrong. Instead of judging them and coming at them and throwing stones at them, let us take on the heart of what it says in uh, Romans 12, 18. Let us be at peace with all people. Be at peace. Now, ultimately, it, it's not even behavior modification that we're after in people anyway, right? Change the behavior. That doesn't necessarily mean anything of eternal consequence. We want people to know Jesus. 
That is our heart. So don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Number two, we are to love all people regardless of their sexual orientation. And the church has kind of a little bit, not just our church, I mean the church in general, kind of gotten a little bit of a black eye on this one over the years because we're right and they are wrong and so we sort of villainize them and demonize them. Well, guess what? Here's what God's word says. Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about love. We've said before that love is ultimately a desire and a doing of good for somebody else. So even if you just say, oh, well, there's you know gay people, the LGBT community, whatever, I'm just gonna stay the heck away from them and you know hopefully no one bothers each other. I mean, okay, but is that your utmost of love? Is that, is that your best, greatest, highest expression of love to them? I would submit again, we probably all know people who are homosexual, belong to the LGBT community. And while we don't agree with that lifestyle, I guess the question is, like, do you show them love in the way that you act and you treat them and you speak to them and you think about them? Um, even simple things like, are you a good friend to them? Are you like a, a, maybe you work with someone who's gay. Like, are you a reasonable coworker? Are you nice to people? Like, it's not necessarily rocket science, right? Do you treat people with dignity? I love what Jeff prayed earlier. That person you're talking to is someone that Jesus loved enough to die for. Like, are we gonna in turn love them well as well? It's not only just a command that we need to love other people, it also is part of our witness. You know what I'm saying? Like, what kind of witness is it if someone who's gay, let's just say, looks at you and they know that you're a Christian, you're representing Jesus, like what are they seeing in you? Are they seeing that the stereotype is, well, Christians are hateful bigots. Like, are we upholding that stereotype or are we showing them like, oh, this person's a church person. They know that I'm like gay, but they don't seem to hate me. That's cool. They seem to be a reasonable person. Like what kind of taste are we giving them about Christians, right? It's part of our witness. We're not going to, my point is this, we're not going to be onto Jesus' heart or win anybody for the kingdom if we fail to love well. Family members, the same deal. And I'm gonna talk about that in a second because number three, it goes right in with this. There's a line that we have to walk. We also don't affirm the practice of homosexuality. So what we're not saying is, okay, well, I gotta love them, I gotta support them, so that means I've gotta really, you know, put on a happy face and celebrate it and go along with it and I really am affirming it and saying, yes, this is okay. That's not the direction we take as God's people. And that's a really delicate, sometimes tightrope to walk is, hey, look, you live in a way that I disagree with, but I love you anyway. And though we don't see eye to eye on this, we're gonna walk side by side. We're gonna be civilized human beings on this. And guess what? Like, we're gonna, I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna love on you. And, and we wanna like witness well to Jesus. Now, here, here's what I wanna say. Again, I'm talking about affirming. If it's a non-Christian who is homosexual, we've already talked about that. We're not to throw stones at them love on them, pray for them. Again, we don't affirm, we don't say, yes, it's cool, it's okay. If it's someone who is a Christian who struggles with homosexuality, and I'll just, let me, let me say this, I don't know if this will be a shock to you or not, there are legitimate, Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people who are going to heaven with you that wrestle in this area. I don't think it's a shock. You don't seem very shocked, which is good. There's a difference between wrestling with the sin versus, no, I'm totally fine with it. I'm going with it. So my point is this. If we are uh, encountering another Christian, for instance, who's wrestling, they say, I, I know that this is wrong, though I'm maybe pulled in this direction of homosexuality. I, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to give in to temptation. I don't want to whatever this, that, I, I want to live for Jesus. Guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to walk alongside them. Bible says, bear one another's burdens. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to have grace for one another in the struggle. Furthermore, we all stumble in many ways. 
So for us to just write off someone who's a Christian who might be struggling in this area, well, guess what? You struggle in other areas. We're to walk together in it. That's ultimately one of the beauties and the joys of being part of a church family. Like we have people to prop us up when we're struggling, when we're wrestling with sin. Uh, like I say, I might not wrestle with this sin, but I wrestle with lots of other sins. And I need you guys to prop me up in that. But again, what it comes down to is when Christians want to affirm homosexuality and say, no, this is right, it's fine, it's pleasing, it's acceptable to God, it's no problem, we'll celebrate it, we'll cheer it on, that's where we draw the line. And at some point, that truth might have to be spoken, even with potentially a family member. Look, I love you, I'm for you, because listen, we're for people. We're not for all the behaviors of people. I'm not for some of the behaviors in my own life, but we are for people. And even though I might disagree with you on this, I love you, I care for you. And, and I'm not gonna celebrate and affirm this, but you're valuable to me. So the point is this, Though there's a certain way of approaching different scenarios when it comes down to affirming the practice of homosexuality, this is where we draw the line. This is not, we're, we're not gonna go out and march in a pride parade, you know what I'm saying? We're not going to, we shouldn't be like probably sharing things on social media, for instance, that are affirming of homosexuality. And, and again, I could stand here and talk all day on walking that line between loving others but not affirming. But that's something that we need to seek the, the strength and the wisdom and the grace from God on maybe daily. Maybe it's someone really close to you and you need daily that wisdom to walk that line, walk that path. And we can talk about that some more. Um, but for now, I wanna move on to just my last point here. And it's don't hobby horse this one sin. It's really easy sometimes as Christians to pick one sin out of the pile and to really focus on it and denounce it and condemn it. Homosexuality is one that gets picked on sometimes. I, when I was researching for this message a few months ago, I came across something that actually really bugged me quite a lot. Someone uh, from a church leadership perspective, not here, I don't know where they were at, but they wrote, pertaining to homosexuality, they said, it is the sin that must not even be named among Christians. And that, I assume, came from in Ephesians 5.3, it says, sexual immorality and a whole bunch of other things are not to be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, it didn't actually say the practice of homosexuality is not to be named. But anyway, my point is this. When you hobby horse one sin, when you elevate one sin way over all the others, when all we want to do is talk about how bad homosexuality is, guess what? I sin in lots of other ways. And it makes me a hypocrite to pick out your sin and to point out maybe the speck that is in your eye when I don't deal with the log in my own eye. When I act like I'm not sinful or my sins aren't as bad as yours, guess what? I'm off the heart of God. That's not God's heart at all. The reality is that you need Jesus and I need Jesus and we all need Jesus and we all need to walk with him and seek him and ask for his mercy and his grace daily together, all of us. Because we all sin. You've got this sin, I've got that sin. We all need Jesus who is the savior from sin. And when we take on that mentality, all of a sudden the ground becomes level, right? I'm no better than you. I'm not holier than thou. I'm not on a high horse. It's hey, let's come alongside one another and let's seek and walk with Jesus together. That's what the church is supposed to do.